Our Father, we pray that however far we get through this narrative this morning, that you would speak clearly from your word. We love the Lord Jesus. We need to hear from him. We need to see him in his glory and listen to him. Some of us here need comforted. Some of us here need inspired. Some of us here need uh, woken up from the slumbers of apathy in the Christian life. Some of us are just plain struggling and need a touch from the Lord Jesus by His Spirit. How on earth could all these things happen at once? They can because the Holy Spirit picks up His sword, the Word of God, and works it into our hearts for His glory and our good. And so, Jesus, speak to us, please. And we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. So, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, Jesus began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In other words, the Lord Jesus is saying, this King of glory, I'm going to have to die. And he said this plainly. There's no spin on Jesus' words. Straight as a die, I have to die. And Peter, one of the disciples, took him aside, that is, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Now, from the context, what did he say to Jesus? It must have been, Jesus, you're not going to die. You don't have to die. No. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, now listen to these words. He didn't say to Peter, you're not quite there yet, Peter, in your understanding. He said to Peter, the one who had just said, you are the Messiah, he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's extraordinarily strong. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's an extraordinary statement to this future leader in his church. And calling the crowd, verse 34, to him with his disciples, in other words, the whole group, that's all of us, all of you, me as well, he said, if, now get your highlighter pen out and underline anyone. Everyone. Whoever. It's not the select few he's speaking to. It's anyone who wants to come after me, in other words, to be my disciple or follower or believer. Let him deny himself. Let him take self off the throne and serve others. That's what it means. And take up their cross. Be willing to suffer for me, Jesus says, and for my gospel, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now that is a logic from the Lord Jesus as to why denying self and taking up our cross is worth it. Why the extraordinary cost of the Christian life is worth it. That's logic. It's persuasive logic. But what people need is not simply persuasive logic, but Jesus himself and a sight of him and the encouragement of him to do that. And so, chapter 9, verse 1, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, and I think he had his eye on Peter and James and John, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. They're going to see something before they die to encourage them. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Just to mark there, not because they are the chosen special three, because they are the three who are struggling the most. Peter has just had these extraordinary words said to him from the Lord Jesus. And if we went forward to chapter 10, we'll see James and John arguing with each other who is the greatest and who merits the best seats in glory beside Jesus. They're the struggling three, and they are the ones Jesus takes up on the mountain. He led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and then six words that lead to 6,000 words in a book or a commentary, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes were shining and so bright as if, so bright that no one could bleach them. Now we'll come back to what's happening there. And there appeared to them, along with Jesus, that is on the mountain, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then the wonderful words that follow, Peter didn't have a clue what was going on. That's what it's saying. He did not know what to say, but he always had to say something. For they were terrified. I've lost the place. There we go. Verse 7. You've now all found where you are. A cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. Now think back to Jesus' baptism. Remember the baptism? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now at the transfiguration, this is my son. In other words, he spoke to Jesus at the baptism. Now he is speaking to the disciples and he is saying this, look, this is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The point of that is all the other protagonists, all the other pretenders to the throne of Jesus, all the other people who pointed to Jesus, Elijah, Moses, the great saints, the great prophets of old, disappeared and we are left with Jesus in his tremendous grace and his tremendous power on top of the mountain, the one person you need to listen to is him. Now, we'll leave it there, and if we uh, do something remarkable and get to that 
uh, within the stopwatch is ticking will carry on down into the valley after uh, this. Now, the first half of Mark's gospel concludes in chapter 8, verse 30. Just turn back to that, to the beginning of our section, with these marvelous, marvelous words, um, verse 29, rather, of Peter. Um, Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? I mean, there's a great question, isn't it? It's not what they say or what he says or what she says, but who do you say that I am? What a timeless question that is. Not from me, but from Jesus. Who do you say I am? That's a very different thing from having a discussion about what we think of Jesus. He says, who am I? And Peter comes out with this wonderful, wonderful truth. And this is a real high moment. You are the Messiah, or the Christ. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. They simply mean God's anointed, chosen king who will lead his people out of slavery to sin to reconciliation with God. Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. That truth has come to Peter's mind and heart, not because of all the evidence, which is overwhelming, but as Jay reminded us last week, because God has opened his eyes and his ears. He can hear, he can see, and now he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, then that strange little verse, verse 30, don't tell anyone who I am. What a strange thing to say. Uh, that's called in uh, techie commentaries on Mark, the messianic secret. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather rephrase it as don't tell until you understand. Don't go and be an evangelist. Don't be a minister of the gospel until you understand. Until you understand not just that Jesus is God's king, but what kind of Messiah he is. He is a servant, a suffering servant. You need to understand verse 31 and following. What does Jesus go on to say? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, to be fair on Peter, the Son of Man title in Mark, which is the most common title Jesus uses of himself, is from Daniel 7. If we had time to read Daniel 7, you would read the picture of the coronation of a king, one like a Son of Man, coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days God who puts a crown in his head and says, you will reign over the earth. And surely... How can that person of Daniel 7, this glorious King Jesus, how must, why must he suffer and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed and after three days rise again? Now, if you are a Christian, you know why. Because the only way we can be saved by God's Messiah King is if the Messiah King gives his life for us. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I mean, that's an extraordinarily strong statement. Now, just uh, pause and, and think about that at, at the moment. How do you hear a statement like that? I mean, let me, let me explain it this way. To any Christian leader, to any Christian leader who is responsible for telling people the good news about Jesus, 
If they take the heart out of the gospel, or if they take the cross out of the gospel, or if they take the fact that the sinless Son of God had to give His life as an atoning sacrifice for sin, if they do anything to tamper with the cross at the heart of the gospel, the Lord Jesus' assessment is, get behind me, Satan. That's extraordinary. Why is the Lord Jesus so inflexible? Because if you don't understand the cross, you won't be saved. If you don't understand the cross as a preacher, you are just telling people stuff that is lies. So important. Notice he doesn't say, get behind me, Peter, for you have in mind the things of men, but not the things of God. He says, get behind me, Satan. And the point there is that while Peter hears these words and is struggling when he hears them, the Lord Jesus is speaking about the one who has the grip of the human mind and the human heart and sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, I think it is, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. Now, Peter's eyes have been half opened, but they need to open more. And so he says, Satan, get out of that man's mind. And if conversion goes on in a human soul, if you are on the cusp of real faith in Jesus, there is a supernatural battle going on for the control of your soul and the control of your mind. And if you are coming to understand, if it feels like scales are falling from your eyes, or you're hearing sermons as opposed to listening to them, that's a big difference. That is the God of heaven dislodging the prince of this world, Satan, from his control and his grip on your life. And now you understand why no mere human can persuade anyone to follow Jesus. It's the work of God by His Spirit. Strong words from the Lord Jesus to Peter. Peter, of course, would come through in the future. Now, let's turn to verses 34 to 38. The Lord Jesus must die, and we must understand that to be a Christian. And then when we're just looking for some kind of sablon for the cuts, Peter's reeling. Peter would have sort of slunk back in the group of disciples with his head down. I mean, it's extraordinary what the Lord Jesus did. Then Jesus says this, and calling the crowd to him with his, he said, look, all of you gather around. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, I mean, this is not a great recruitment campaign. If anyone wants to follow me, Let him deny himself. If anyone wants to follow me, I need from them total renunciation of self. No longer self on the throne, but self on the cross. No longer a life lived for me, but a life lived for others. Total renunciation of self means love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Give away all that you have if I ask you. Go anywhere if I ask you. Give up your life, your aspirations, your dreams, your pretensions on this earth for my sake and the gospel go. That's what it says. And underline the words, if anyone, anyone. Deny self and take up your cross 
and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? It means to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It means to stand with Jesus when others don't. It means to align with him. It means to be opposed, to be persecuted. It means to, uh, to experience a life of struggling with sin, which is the Christian life. I mean, if any of you have arrived in that battle and have got to the other end and conquered sin, do tell me afterwards. And I'll tell you, you haven't. The ongoing battle in the Christian life is costly. Constantly making decisions to do what's right by God's Word when our instincts, our inclinations are to do something else. Maybe it's giving up our money to buy a building like this. I and mean, what a crazy idea. It's costly. The Christian life for us all. Going to work and trying to work out how you're going to navigate as a Christian in a really secular and hostile workplace. The cost of following Jesus. Now, what we get is some uh, logic or explanation from the Lord Jesus. Why is it worth it to be um, a, a Christian? Let's just look at these uh, words in verses 35 to 37. Uh, the persuasive logic as to why it is worth it. And it's very striking that what Mark gives us in his narrative here is a combination of persuasive logic and a sight of Jesus in person. We need both. Verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does that mean? It means this. Whoever wants to save their life, that is say no to Jesus, no to being his follower, no to denying self, no to taking up your cross in this life, will lose their life. Eternal judgment. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, that is, give their earthly life to saying yes to Jesus, yes to denying self, yes to taking up your cross in this life, will save their life in eternity, eternal life. Verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? In other words, what good is it to say no to Jesus, no to denying self, no to taking up your cross in this life, even if you gain the whole world, success, reputation, wealth, yet forfeit your soul and face eternal judgment. One of the great privileges of ministry is being afforded the privilege of being with people as they die or close to their death. It's an enormous privilege. I was able to be with Joan the night before she died. She died in the morning, on Friday morning. She had to endure me singing to her. 
and various other things and reading and stuff and who knows what she heard. I also remember being with a man whose name was Ray and he had, he had unusually kind of almost physically refused to give me any opportunity to speak to him of Jesus as he died. He wouldn't let me pray, for example. But in my younger days as a minister, I didn't take no as an answer, and I said it persisted. And I read to him this verse in Mark, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And as this man Ray slipped into half-consciousness and then three-quarter unconsciousness, just as he slipped away into that realm before death, he began to repeat as he lay there in his bed, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? It's all he said in the last day of his life. I mean, that is logically right, isn't it? You almost need to steal yourself and go to that moment and bring that moment to the present. What good is it to gain the whole world? Yeah, forfeit your soul. I mean, who did Joan have with her as she died? Maureen and Jenny? Not our possessions. She had Maureen, she had Jenny, and she had Jesus. That's what matters. That's what matters. When you cut to the chase, it's powerfully logical, powerfully persuasive. Verse 37, Of what can anyone give in exchange for his soul? If you say no to Jesus now, when you face him on judgment day, as we all will, what will you offer him then in exchange for your soul? Will you offer him the reputation or the possessions you amassed in this life? Will you offer him your moral uprightness? Will you offer him your religious pedigree? None of it will count for a thing. The only thing we can take from this life that counts is a soul secure in Jesus or not. So what will Joan offer Jesus when he, she speaks to him on Judgment Day? I mean, she will... And I hope you don't find that emotive. It's just true. She will plead the cross of Christ for her eternal life and nothing else. And she will be welcomed into the arms of her Savior. The only thing we take from this life that counts is a soul secure in Jesus or not, and there are eternal consequences, eternal life if we say yes to Jesus now in this life, eternal judgment if we say no. That is persuasive logic. Compare this life with all eternity. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world in this life and yet forfeit their soul for eternity? Now, how might we summarize the persuasive logic saying yes to Jesus now, saving our souls, denying self, taking up your cross to advance Jesus' kingdom and his gospel is worth it 10,000 times over with everlasting glory ahead of us 
one of the phrases that you may have heard being used, which is completely wrong, is that somebody is so heavenly minded they are of no earthly use. To be eternally minded is to be of earthly use. To be eternally minded is to be earthly safe. Think on eternity. Think on these brief span of years here. And give the throne of your heart to Jesus. Verse 38 is a searching challenge. What stops people from answering the call to follow Jesus? They are ashamed of public loyalty to Jesus. Jesus' words in verse 38 are deeply challenging. Now, don't hear these words. Uh, I mean, there are times this week when I've been ashamed of public loyalty to Jesus. I mean, in the hairdresser this week, some of you have been admiring my new haircut today. I mean, it's amazing what people say to me as a minister, like, I like your hair. And I can't really say back, I like yours, can I? Anyway, I had my hair cut. And I'll tell you where it was if you think it's nice. It's cheap as well. And the hairdresser got me in a conversation. And, I, you know, I, all I needed to do was, I said, I'm a minister. And, of course, that's useless, isn't it? I needed to say I'm a Christian. And can I tell you, are you, I didn't do anything, though. I just moved to holidays. And a bit of that is because of shame, isn't it? It's always that. And you come away and you think, come on, Jesus, what, why... It's not talking about that. This is people who say no to following him because they will not align themselves with the people of God. And what sobering words they are. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus will be ashamed of us. He will not stand with us in eternity if we will not stand with him in earth. That's what it says. That's what Jesus says. Jesus will not, he cannot, he is unable to negotiate the terms of salvation because he is God. You must understand that he needs to die. And you must be willing to renounce self and take up His cross to advance His kingdom on the earth in light of the fact that you will have an eternity 10,000 times 10,000 years in the glory of His presence in the new creation. It's not about the times we mess up in all of this. It's about the decisions of life for eternity, where it really cuts, where our hearts are now, where our inclinations are, when push comes to shove, what really matters most. Now, why we are encouraged that books like Mark's Gospel are inspired by Almighty God is that what we need as ordinary punter Christians, struggling as we contemplate the cost of discipleship, struggling as we contemplate that our lives are all compromised and messed up, is we don't just need from Jesus persuasive logic. My head needs persuasive logic. My heart needs Jesus. I need Him. I need to see Him as He now is. And of course, that's exactly what happens in Mark's text. 
After six days, after six days, that's about, that's enough time to think about what he said. After six days, he took Peter and James and John up on the mountainside. One of the commentaries I've got in Mark says he took Peter and James and John as the founding apostles of the early church. I mean, they were, but that's not why he took them up the mountain. He took Peter up the mountain because he just said to him, get behind me, Satan. He just said to Peter, you've no idea about the cross. And he took James and John, because in chapter 10, a little bit later, James sidles up to John, and they were brothers, and he said, which one of us do you think is the best, and which one of us is going to ask if we can sit next to Jesus in glory? And Jesus said to them, you have no idea what you are asking. It's not my place to give these seats in glory, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to serve to be served, but serve, and to give his life. He doesn't take Peter, James, and John up the mountain because they are star apostles. He takes, and he takes us, and he wants all of us to go up that mountain because I bet in this room and in this picture, we're not star apostles or star Christians. We're just struggling, normal Christians who need the logic of the gospel to give our lives to Jesus and who need to see Jesus in his glory. We need both. You've got to see Jesus and you've got to understand. You need both. So let's go up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus and see Jesus transfigured before them. Now, what they saw on the mountain was Jesus, um, who would have looked a bit like me and you as a human. He was a human king up on the mountain and he became radiant. He became uh, glorified and shining uh, and what they saw is they saw the divinity of Christ. They saw the, the glory of God in the Son of God. They, they saw that their human king was the eternal Son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we know they saw that? Well, Peter, who was there, tells us that in his second letter. He said, when we were on the mountain, we saw Jesus in his glory. And in fact, what Peter says they saw is the returning king of glory. They saw right forward to the end of time. When Jesus comes back in his glory as king and judge, they saw the dawn of eternity. And Peter, Peter, um, as Mark tells us, had no idea what was going on. Peter was Mark's source, and uh, Peter would have said to Mark when he wrote this down, Peter, you just need to be honest and you need to tell him I had no idea what was going on on that mountain. And so Peter says things like, look, um, uh, Moses and Elijah here, let's get some tabernacles, they're tents. And what Peter was thinking is let's put God's glory in a tent like the Old Testament because if we are in the presence of Almighty God physically, we'll be zapped. That's why God needs to go into a tabernacle. It's why... The high priest could only go in once a year to the presence of God. And we don't need tabernacles because we can stand. They could stand in the face of Jesus. And what about all this stuff? There's Moses, there's Elijah. Why are, why are they there? These great prophets and deliverers of the Old Testament, they are there and then they disappear. Chapter 9, verse 7. They disappear and who is left on the mountain? I wish we were in Africa. You would all shout out, Jesus, brother. 
You don't do that. No, no, no. Who's left on the Jesus, who's left with you as you go through the valley of the shadow of death? Jesus. That's why the shepherd Sam changes its pronouns from he is the Lord to chapter Psalm 23, verse 4, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Alone with Jesus on the mountain, seeing his glory and his power and his majesty, the voice from God that breaks into the scene reminiscent of the voice at the baptism, no longer you are my son, but this time you can see it, this is my son, and we all look at him, Jesus, this is my son, look at him, look at him in his glory, what does it say then? Listen to him. As you look at him, listen to him. Listen to what? Listen to what he has just said. One, I have to die. And two, you have to die to self and take up your cross. Now what persuades you to a life of committed discipleship is the logic of chapter 8, verses 35 to 38 and the power of the sight of the King of Glory in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, and the voice of God who says to us, you need to listen to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would have got the heart out of this section of your word this morning, the radical, tough call to discipleship, Logical, yes, when seen in light of eternity. And persuasive, yes, when seen as we look at the face of the King of glory in all of His radiant splendor and majesty. The returning King of glory in His tremendous grace, in His tremendous power, Encouraging Peter and James and John, encouraging us. Taking us up that mountain, as it were, this morning to gaze on his glory. And that voice from God breaking into the scene, this is my son, this is my Messiah King, this is the eternal Son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the King of the everlasting kingdom of God. This is the one who will right all wrongs. This is the one who will judge all people. This is the one with whom you will live if you are a believer for all eternity. Listen to him. Listen to him. And understand that he needs to die. Listen to him and deny self. And take up your cross. And follow him.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.